You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Good morning. It's great to see you today. Time change day on the, the first day of spring break. You get extra points for that. Not as many points as the 930 group, though, just so you know. Hey, if uh, you're visiting with us, I want to add my welcome. Glad that you are here. We do not uh, believe that you're here by accident in any way, and so I trust that you um, uh, will find exactly what it is that God had in store for you today. And as those uh, black notebooks go down the aisle... Um, if you are visiting, it's a great place to let us know that you were here. Um, and for all of us, um, if there are ways that we can pray for you, we'd love to know how to pray for you. We'd love to, to join in prayer with you and for you. It is a great privilege for us to do that. We pray as elders and pastors every week over those requests. And um, so uh, thank you for, for sharing those uh, burdens with us as, a, as the body of Christ. We, um, we do. We enter into those together. Hey, so listen, we, we are in Galatians chapter 3. We are, um, this is a new section in the letter that Paul is writing to Galatians. If um, you're new with us today or you haven't been here in the last few weeks, let me catch you up. Paul, um, writing to the Galatians, if you um, have ever picked up the letter to the Galatians, it's six short chapters, but most um, throughout the history of the church that have read it have described Galatians as a bombshell. It's like this bomb that goes off and theological shrapnel um, just, just explodes everywhere all over uh, these Galatian churches, which is a modern-day Turkey is where it is. And the first two chapters, Paul um, comes right out of the gates, and he's defending two things. One, he's defending his apostolic uh, calling. Uh, they, they have uh, some Judaizers, so some uh, opponents have come in, and they have... Uh, been undermining who Paul is as an apostle, as one called by God, saying, look, he, he's not really called by God. He's, he's just a guy who's out there. He's less than all the guys that have come from Jerusalem. Um, he doesn't really need to be listened to. He has also been defending his message of the gospel because Paul has been um, explicit that, listen, to, um, to be saved and reconciled to God. That happens because of what Jesus has done, not because of what you can do. Not anything that you do or have done or will ever do can make any progress in your life towards reconciling you to God. You must, you are desperate for the work of another. And that other is Jesus, the Son of God. And so Paul's gospel is this. Jesus died in your place. Jesus lived in your place. Everything you need, Jesus is. And the gospel is that Jesus has given it to you. He's taken all of your sin and given you all of his perfection. And that by faith in him, trusting in him, that's the only way you can stand right before God. And that's Paul's message. And they've said, look, that's... That's fine. It's a great way to start, but you need much more than that. 
There's the law, and there's circumcision, and there's all these things that you've got to add to that, or you, you can't really be right with God. And Paul has come in with as much force as you ever see Paul write anywhere in the New Testament to say, no, no, that's not right. You add anything to the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. You add anything to the gospel, it becomes subtraction. It becomes distortion. It becomes something other than the gospel. So this is Paul's great defense. So here in chapter 3, he turns the corner a little bit, and he's, and he's going to kind of go at the Galatians. It's going to sound kind of harsh. In fact, he's going to say some things. Not the harshest things he says in Galatians, but he's going to say some things that are kind of harsh because it seems as though the Galatians have, are, are kind of under a spell a little bit. They have begun this Christian life, and now... In beginning the Christian life, they've taken up the reins themselves. It's like they've begun the Christian life, and yet they've, they've taken over to the driver's seat. They've taken the keys of the car. They said, okay, listen, we, we began the Christian life. Now it's up to us. It's up to our strength, our devices, our strategies, our disciplines. We are responsible for our growth in this deal. And Paul says, no, wait a minute. You began in the Spirit. You live in the Spirit. That's how it goes. You began by faith, you live in faith. The way you live is the way you began. That's how it goes. And any, anything else is also a distortion. And what he begins to talk about this morning is this thing we speak about in the church called sanctification, our growth in the Christian life. How do we grow? And the reality is, for many believers, if we talk about spiritual growth, we talk about sanctification... We all know a lot of the right answers. We come to Christ. We talk about new life. We say things like the old is gone and the new has come. And yet we really experience a lot of disappointment, a lot of disillusion. And the reality is we find out the old is not really that much gone. We try over and over at our strategies to change, but we realize, you know what? The old is not really that much gone. I mean, I've tried over and over again, and yet I see, seem to keep falling back into the same old ways, and I, I'm having a hard time discerning my old life from my new life. And, and, and I don't know what it's supposed to look like, and I thought I'm supposed to be getting better, and, and, and yet I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried that maybe I'm not doing this right. I'm worried that maybe worried that maybe I'm doing this wrong. I'm, I'm worried that maybe I'm not trying hard enough. I'm, I'm worried maybe God's not pleased with me. I'm, and so a lot of believers live in, in great fear and discouragement and disillusionment about their Christian life for years and years. And our strategy is, is that we continue to clean up the outside, we continue to show up at church, we continue to play the part, we continue to look good, so that nobody knows. And yet, all the while, we're dying inside. And I think Paul's going to help us this morning. Over the next three chapters, Galatians 3, Galatians 4, Galatians 5, Galatians, Paul's going to say more about the power of the Holy Spirit than he says really anywhere else in all of his writings, except for maybe Romans chapter 8. So I want us to be good hearers this morning. I want us to be good hearers of what God has spoken. Because I think there's great hope in what he has to say. I think he's going to begin to help us to know, is there really power? Is there really the 
possibility of change? Is there really power in our life? Can change really happen? And if so, how does it happen? Because man, if, if it can, I really want it to. And if so, Paul, help me. Help me know what that looks like. So if you would, Galatians chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to read nine verses, and I'm just going to tell you right now, we're not getting through nine verses, all right? And we're going to finish Galatians, all right? I, maybe not before Jesus comes back, and if that's, that's okay, he'll finish it for us. Um, but we're going, to, we're going to make a little bit of headway today, and, uh, and but I'm going to... I'm, I'm, I'm going to try real hard. All right. So, but I'm going to read nine verses. We'll see how far we get. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what he says. Oh, foolish Galatians. I'm glad Paul never wrote me a letter. All right. Just saying that. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Now, this is funny because I think it's funny. He says, let me ask you only this, except he's going to ask a whole bunch of questions, all right? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of, with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. He begins by saying to them, listen, you're under a spell. You, you've forgotten what you've seen. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? The Phillips translation, the old Phillips translation says, you oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. And the Jerusalem Bible says it this way, are you people in Galatia, have you gone mad? That's what he's saying. The, the Greek word there for bewitched, it, it's, um, it, it's the only time it's ever used in the New Testament. It, it's a reference to an evil eye. This magical, mysterious, powerful, evil eye. It's, it's like they're under the spell of an evil eye. Someone's cast a spell on them, or they're acting like it. That they've been blinded to the truth. Their, their senses have been numbed. The best way that I can explain it, if you've seen Lord of the Rings, I've got a picture up here. You've seen Lord of the Rings, there's this scene, Theoden. So he's the, he's the king there of Rohan. So he's up there on the top right, and there's um, uh, Gimli, uh, uh, worm tongue, that's what they call him. And that's where you see him up there. And he's got this guy whispering in his ear, and he's under the spell of Saruman, if you are Lord of the Rings conversant, all right? If not, it's, you can repent of that. Go home, watch it today. All three of them. You got an ex, you know. So, then Gandalf, who's this bottom left character, they think he's Gandalf the Grey. He's really Gandalf the White. He shows up. 
And um, he sees that he's under the spell. I mean, you can tell just how disfigured he is. This is what he's really supposed to look like on the right. But this is what the spell's done to him. And Gandalf shows up and he, and he says to him, he says, he, he goes to cast the spell out. He says, hearken to me, I release you from the spell, be gone. And then immediately, I mean, you just see this like transformation, the way they do it in the movie and the book just describes it. And Theoden, it's like he comes to his senses. He says, I, I recognize your face. He says, oh, Gandalf. And then Gandalf says, breathe the free air again, my friend. And Theoden stands up from the throne. And he says, dark have been my dreams of late. And then Gandalf hands him his sword and says, well, your fingers would remember their old strength better if you grasped your sword. Paul essentially is saying to the Galatians that your faith would remember its strength better if it grasped hold of the cross again. That's what he's saying. You've forgotten this thing that was portrayed right in front of you, publicly portrayed in front of you. You took your eyes off of it. You've been bewitched. You're under a spell. Your senses have been numbed. Because that's what he says. It was before your very eyes, before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The spell of the evil eye is cast on you and you lost sight of what was right before you. What does Paul mean? This publicly betrayed before you. So, so the crucifixion, by the time Galatians is written, the crucifixion is at least 15 years in the past. And the area that this letter goes to is probably over 800 miles away from Jerusalem, about a 20 to 30 day journey, probably. So he doesn't mean that the readers of Galatia literally, physically saw Jesus die on the cross. It's publicly portrayed. It's, it's, it's media language, like a billboard or a placard. But Paul doesn't mean, hey, listen, I showed up and I painted a picture or I you know, showed up with my, my flannel graph. That's not what he means. He means in preaching, I vividly, I, I preached, I, I, I proclaimed to you, publicly proclaimed to you in the preaching. Now let's just, I'm going to talk about this for just a second because listen, the purpose of preaching is to open the scriptures and proclaim Christ and lift high the message of the cross and the resurrection for all to see. That's the purpose. Calvin in the 16th century, John Calvin, here's what he said. Look at that beard. So let those... He's talking about... I mean, So this is in face of all the icons and the art everywhere in all the churches. But here's what he says about preaching in light of all that. He says, Let those who want to discharge the ministry of the gospel aright learn not only to speak and to claim, but also to penetrate into consciences so that 
Men may see Christ crucified and feel the shedding of his blood. He goes on, when the church has seen such painters as these, the preachers, she no longer needs wood and stone, that is, dead images. She no longer requires any pictures. It's the power of preaching. It takes the mighty acts of God in history and displays them to the minds and the hearts in the present. So by the time Paul's finished preaching to them, the Galatians, that they feel like they've seen the crucifixion with their own eyes. I mean, they've, they've watched the body of the living Jesus be resurrected. Die bloody on the cross and walk out of the tomb. And Paul's saying, listen, I came to town. I didn't just come teaching. I didn't come with a bunch of spiritual principles. I didn't come with a list of do's and don'ts. I came, I graphically, vividly conveyed to you the story of Jesus. His life, his, his death, and his resurrection. Ephesians 1.18. Paul prays for the Ephesians. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. What Paul means is, listen, that not just, I, I didn't just come and give you rules and regulations and, and, and principles. I told you a story of Jesus, about Jesus living and dying for you. Jesus crucified. Something happened. And then, as they heard it, something happened in them, down deep, and the eyes of their heart were enlightened. And that's what happens when you become a Christian. Listen, you might know all about Jesus. You might know. Listen, you might know the facts. Listen, he died on the cross. He was buried in a tomb and he rose three days later. And you can, re you can rehearse it. You can recount it. But, but becoming a Christian, the eyes of your heart being enlightened, that's when that becomes real and known and you're moved and it's graphically portrayed and you go, oh, I see it. And now it's, now it's beautiful. It's one thing to say, you know what? I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. But then to go, no, no, no. I'm a sinner. I feel it. I taste it. I touch it. I know it in the core of who I am. And Jesus died on the cross. He had to die for me. And I have no hope if he doesn't. See what he went through and to know that that's for me. John Stott, he says about this, he says, listen, Paul comes, he's not talking about advice. He comes to speak the good news of Jesus. He's, he's not saying, here's what you have to do. He says, here's what was done for you. See, this is something that God does. It's what God does supernaturally through the ministry of preaching. It's not the preacher by any means. And in fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that's what Paul's going to say. He's going to write to the Corinthians, and he's going to say to them, Listen, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come. With... I was not dynamic when I came. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then he goes on. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And when Jesus had been with the disciples for three years, almost three years, he takes them, just before he goes to Jerusalem for the last time, he takes them all the way to the north end of Jerusalem to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's the, um, it was the um, center of, of idol worship in Israel. And he takes his disciples up to the north end of Jerusalem and just before they head south to go to uh, north end of Israel, just before they head south to go to Jerusalem for the last time where Jesus will be arrested and then uh, those events take place for his crucifixion. And it's up in Caesarea Philippi that he asks the question when he's up there to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And that's when the disciples say, well, some people say John the Baptist and others say Elijah. And then Jesus looks at him, as Matthew 16 records this, and Jesus looks at him and says, well, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter that answers. And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you know what Jesus says to him? This is after being with Jesus almost three years. Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Peter, son of Bar-Jonah, I mean, son of Jonah, Peter, blessed are you because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but your Father in heaven. Do you know what that means? It means Peter did not come to the realization that Jesus was the Messiah because he'd walked with him for three years and seen him do miracles and heard his teaching and had observed his ministry and had deductive reasoning and had decided all of a sudden, you know what, it dawned on me that I think Jesus is the Messiah. That is not how Peter came to that knowledge and that confession. He came to that confession, Jesus says, because God revealed it to him. That's how that happens. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is with two men on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. He's walking with two men on Emmaus. He opens the scripture, and the two men talk about it after Jesus leaves. And they talk about Jesus opened the scripture. He was with them, and they talk about their hearts burning inside of them when Jesus was opening the scripture to them, speaking of himself in the Old Testament. This one, this is the way the Scripture speaks about Scripture being opened and the Spirit of God working and the proclaimed Scripture on our hearts to enlighten our hearts, to ignite faith so that we believe. This thing God does is what He says. In fact, that's why he says he's going to ask a series of questions, and he begins here. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit? So when you started this deal, 
When this was preached and the Spirit came on you, let me ask you, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or, notice what he says, verse 2, or by hearing with faith? You can think about it, hearing with your heart. The eyes of your heart enlightened. Romans 10, 17, you know what it says? Faith comes from hearing. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing from the word of Christ. The gospel, the good news, and the way the Holy Spirit turns our eyes away from ourself and on to Christ. That the gospel brings you into union with Christ. Enters in and, and gives you faith, and by faith you receive Christ in all His fullness. He fixes your eyes on Christ and rests on Him. They were hearing the message, Paul preaching about Jesus being crucified on a particular day by particular men outside a particular city on a particular tree so vividly. And by God's mercy, this sacrifice was made acceptable as the full price for sin. And he's buried in a grave and raises again out of the grave. And all who believe, there's hope and forgiveness and salvation. And then something happened. One writer says it this way, and you didn't plan it, and you didn't force it. It came on you like the dawn comes upon a darkened city, and with it, whether in front or behind, you couldn't tell, came the Spirit, and you felt yourself crying out in your heart, Abba, Father, Jesus is Lord, and, and you did no works. You were worked upon, and the Word of God, sharper than a two-edged sword, cut away all your defenses and laid bare your need and God's provision and the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ drove out the darkness of unbelief and you found yourself as helpless as a little child yet utterly secure in the love of Jesus. You'd come, he'd come to you in his word and the word had produced faith and the old self of rebellion died and the spirit of Christ took up residence in your heart. Galatians, you did not get the Spirit. You did not become Christians by working for God. You received the Spirit when God worked for you. Isn't that comforting? C.S. Lewis describes it this way for him. He says, you must picture me alone in that room at Magdalene. Love this. Night after night feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting reproach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet, that which I greatly feared had at, had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. And Nelton prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. He goes on and says, I did not see then what I see now as the most shining and obvious thing. The divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet 
But who can duly adore the love that will open high gates to a prodigal who's brought in, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The hardness of God is kinder, kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. You know where you see Lewis work that out? If you ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, you see it in Aslan. This great, terrifying, and great, and loving, and awesome lion. Who is one and the same God the Father and Christ the Redeemer. Who hunts down mankind. And loves him. Lewis is working that out. And Paul wants the Galatians to wake up from the spell that they're under. That's why he said, look, look, look at this in verse 3. He says, are you so foolish? It's, it's not that they're not smart. This is not what he's talking about. They've, they've become spiritually numb. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's a rhetorical question. Earlier, he'd been showing them the Superiority of faith over works. Now he's showing them the superiority of flesh over the spirit. The term flesh, it's a technical term for Paul. It means the old I, the, the old Adam, the, uh, the old self, the old man. You know, Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the old is gone. And the new has come. And when a person is in Christ, he or she is part of the new creation. I mean, so a new heart and a new mind and, a, and new affections brought about by God's Spirit. And all of that will be fully completed at the day of Christ's return. At the second coming of Christ. At the resurrection, the immortality, and the new heavens and the new earth. That has been inaugurated in you. That has been begun in you. It's the already and not yet of our experience now. It's the already and not yet of our experience now. Already, you're a new creation. When God sees you, you know what he sees? He sees his son Christ. You are clothed in the perfection of Christ. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. He sees his son. And there's also the not yet. 
you live and breathe and carry around this body of flesh on this earth. And there are natural inclinations that you will wrestle with from now until then. And and your old self is always going to be drawn to independence and uh, self-reliance and um, self-assertion. And the flesh is this autonomous self so in love with its personal power and its self-determination Always desirous to make itself known. And listen, it doesn't always look wicked, by the way. It doesn't. I mean, sometimes it is. It's rebellious and it and it and it flares up and it and it strikes out against God and it's uh and it and it lashes out in bitterness towards others. And it shows up in anger and envy and self-destructive behavior. It absolutely does all of those things. But it also, it also has this very religious, moral, pious side too. It cleans up well. Determined to get credit for whatever successes it can take credit for so that it can te- keep its pride Intact. There's a story a friend of mine told several years ago about a family that was vacationing down on the on the Gulf Coast. The kids came across this. Uh, the family was vacationing. These kids that came across this soaked and scraggly little dog, and they couldn't find the owner. And they talked the parents into keeping the dog, so they took it home. And they washed the dog. They bathed it. They even gave the dog a name. And uh, so the next day they. They had to go out. They left the dog with the food and water and uh, left it at home with the pet cat. They come home, and they find the cat dead. I mean, not, I mean, like, really dead. And so the parents are like, huh. Obvious that the new pet is the culprit of this. So they take this dog to the vet to find out, hey, what's you know wrong with the dog? And the vet calls and says, hey, um, this isn't a dog. It's an African rat that probably loaded up on a ship from Africa, got to the uh, you know to the coast on the deal, got off, swam up, and your kids picked it up and washed it, bathed it, and named it. You want to know the moral of that story? (laughs) A rat is a rat is a rat. And that's the flesh. Whether it hangs out in the church or at a bar. Whether it's disciplined or self-indulgent. It's still the flesh. It doesn't get any better. The flesh is never our hope. The flesh is not our story any longer. The old is gone. That's not our story any longer. Jesus said, look, the flesh doesn't profit anything. 
There's no amount of self-help or positive thinking or meditation or penance that improves the old man or the old woman. The flesh is the flesh is the flesh. John Chrysostom, the old church father, said it's like turning from the light of the sun back to the light of a candle. Why would you do that? Your hope is not there. Your old man never gets better. You live in the power of the new man and dwelt by the Spirit of God in union with Christ. He tells him in verse for did you suffer so many things in vain? And what he means is, listen, if, if, you, if you have to be circumcised to be a Christian, did you suffer all those things not as a Christian? Now you got to be... Are you crazy? Are you crazy? And in verse 5 and 6, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing of faith? The, the power, the, the powerful work of the Spirit has been evident among the Galatians. He goes on, his whole, his whole thing is, look, you already are children of the covenant. You already are children of Abraham. The law doesn't add anything to you. You have everything you ever needed. You have everything you ever needed. So how do we live out of what God has begun in us? Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you, he'll bring it to completion. How, how is that true? How do we continue on to the end in the Christian life the way we've begun? Well, it is not that we start by grace and advance with our own efforts. It's not that we're saved by the gospel and that we master the set of disciplines. That becomes a recipe for self-righteousness when you succeed. It's exhaustion. When you're trying, it's depression. When you fail. So how, how, does, a, how does change happen? Well, I'd say this. It's, um, it's a change in how you do things. The strategies of your old man, they're not the strategies of the new man. The strategies that served you up to a point that you had for a while, the things you relied on, they're not the strategies of the new man. The things you used when you were young to survive, how many every years they were. Maybe those things you told yourself when you were young. Rely on no one. Trust no one. Never let them see you sweat. It's all up to you. Those sorts of things. It's an absolute abandonment of those. See, Jesus doesn't come along and say, listen, I'm trying to improve the old you. I, I really, I think you're a good fixer-upper. It's a... It's a new life. It's an entirely new story.
renew, new life, transformation, resurrection. You know what resurrection means? You know what the prerequisite of resurrection is? Death. Death of the old. And it feels like death. Death of the things that you've always known, maybe. The way you've always done it. But we get frustrated. We get impatient. We want stuff now. Here's the deal. Paul said, we looked at it a couple weeks ago, I was crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, because I live it. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It means I'm a Christian. If I am and I go on living, obviously, but you don't go on living the same story. You don't go on living the same story. And you don't go on living a new story aiming at the old ending. And you're no longer the central character. I live, but I no longer live. Christ lives in me. A new way. A new way of being human, more human actually, more alive. I'd say it takes courage to renounce the way maybe you've always done things. To trust, to, to trust a way you've never walked before. To walk by the Spirit. To admit that every day you need something you can't give yourself. And that's grace. Only God can change you. And here's the deal. If you're a believer, He already has. And you, now, are living out the change. You, you, you embrace the change that has happened. Yield to the Spirit of God. Live in the power. Live out the change that has already happened. Live out the end of the story that's already been written. Larry Crabb in his book, I'll end with this. He, he gives these three approaches that we usually walk out of church with, we usually take with us. One is that we walk out and we feel like this message is, do what's right. Make your checklist, check your boxes, try harder, do better. The other one, fix what's wrong. Do what's right. Fix what's wrong. Fix what's wrong says you can't do what's right till the damage from the past is fixed. Change comes from repair. Change the past, change the pain. Fix, fix is the prerequisite to life beginning. But most of the time, both of those models are not um, gospel help. They're apart from the gospel. Now listen, should you, should you do what's right? Sure you should. 
I tell my kids all the time, do what's right. I'm a big fan of doing what's right. Big fan of it. Should you fix what's wrong? Also a big fan of that, actually. But these things, usually in and of themselves, they usually come about as this, pull your bootstraps up. Dig deep. Try harder, do better. They don't usually find their um, resources or means pursued from the Scripture. And you know what? They're marginally successful. And you know they're marginally successful because those are the strategies you've pursued your entire life. The third one a lot of people do is you uh, go looking for what's missing. Goosebumps, chase emotions, feelings, experiences, here's the problem. It's usually on our terms. We pick, we choose, and we're fickle. And ultimately, it doesn't lead to maturity. It usually leads to disillusionment in the end. There's a better way. Do you know that you already have every resource, everything you need available to you? Everything, every resource, every spiritual good, everything at your disposal, what God desires from you, he's deposited in you. Every empowerment that you need, he's empowered you with. What God requires from you, he's already placed in you. There are living waters flowing from you. It is releasing what is within. It is Christ in you. We are in Christ. There is a better way. It is walking in who you are by the power of the Spirit you are in, united to the Christ who is in you. It's keeping that gospel in front of you, always in front of you, learning to preach the gospel to yourself. Jesus completes you. Jesus justifies you before God and others. Listen, it's Jesus plus nothing. That's the gospel, period. It equals everything. You add nothing to it. You add anything to it, it becomes subtraction. Subtraction, it's distortion. It's no longer the gospel. It's reminding yourself every time you think, I'm looking for something. That what you're looking for, you already have. He died for you 2,000 years ago. in a particular place, in particular men on a particular tree, for a particular to you in all of your sins. And laid in a particular grave, and three days later rose again. And believing in him, you become one with him. All he is, you now are. Right with God. All his power that's yours. Walking, living in Him. All right, well, I'm over time and we're out of. I'm going to pick this up next week. We're going to talk more about it. More spirit, more grace, more gospel. Come back.
I got four more pages. Let's pray. Father, we uh, pray your word would not return void this morning. I pray that you would you would take the truth of the grace of your son Jesus that Father, you would, you would take that and apply it to our hearts. You would enlighten the eyes of our heart. That for those that this morning that would be that are under a spell, bewitched by the old man that came in here this morning relying on themselves to, to walk in this life. Father, whether as believers or unbelievers. That, Father, you would use the, the vivid image of the, of the cross of your Son, Jesus, and Him crucified and buried and resurrected to break the spell. Father, would you enlighten the eyes of our heart? Would you ignite faith in us? Would you draw us to your Son, Christ? Father, would you, uh, would you continue to cause us to walk in your ways? Would you, would you draw to the surface the power in us? Father, when we walk out of here, it wouldn't be to, to try harder to do what's right, to, to work harder to fix what's wrong, to we wouldn't walk out of here trying to chase what's missing. Father, believing that we have all in Christ, that He is all. Father, we want to walk in that. So we pray that you'd do that in us. We ask that you'd fix our eyes on that. We ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.